0: Today, we are fortunate to welcome to the pulpit Lane Brubaker, who is the organizing pastor of Hagar's Community Church at the women's, help me, <laughs> Washington, Washington Correction Center for Women, which is located north of Gig Harbor. So help me welcome Lane. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's a blessing to get to be with you. Thank you. So our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapters 16 and 21. And I do not encourage you to try to read along with me this morning because um, I've put together a narrative retelling um, adapted from the message. And so if you tried to read this in your pew Bibles, it would you wouldn't be able to follow along. <laughs> so I invite you to listen to this story about Hagar. So now life was complicated for Abraham and Sarah. God had promised them a child, that they would be the mother and father of a great nation. But as they aged, they were finding it harder and harder to have faith in God's promises. So Sarah had the idea, and she said to Abraham, we should have a backup plan. So she suggested to have a child with her servant Hagar thinking, perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed to what she said. And Hagar became pregnant. And it was not as easy for Sarah as she thought it would be. Contempt began to grow between the women. And Sarah began to treat Hagar harshly. So Hagar decided to run away, fleeing harm from Sarah. She ran with no provisions into the wilderness, And the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she replied. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. You are pregnant. And you will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's against him. He will live in hostility towards his brother. Hagar says, You are the God who sees me, for I have now seen the one who sees me. Years later, God gave Abraham and Sarah a child that they named Isaac. And as Isaac grew, the contempt between Sarah and Hagar began to grow as well. And Sarah asked Abraham to send Hagar and her son away. So early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. And he set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert. And when the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. But God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift him up. Take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, so she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with him as he grew, and he lived in the desert and became an archer, and while in the desert, his mother got a wife from him from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So, this is pretty complicated, right? <laughs> this is a pretty big mess we find our characters in this morning. If Genesis 16 and 21 were a movie, who would you pick to be the bad guy in the story? I mean, maybe Abraham? Sure, he's following God's orders somewhat, but he's also the one who has ultimately sent Hagar and Ishmael off with nothing more than bread and a skin of water. you think he could have given his child a little bit more than that. Abraham was also the one really approving the whole thing from the beginning. He's the man. He has a lot of power in this situation. So I would say we could pick him to be the bad guy. Or is it Sarah? She's the one who's banished a woman and her child. She's the one who's overreacted. The whole thing was her plan to begin with, and then she couldn't go through with it, and she became, became cruel. She's also the one who, the scripture says, treats Hagar harshly, which many translate as beating. So I think maybe she's the bad guy. Or is it Hagar? Maybe Hagar is instigating some of Sarah's anger in the first place when she looks at Sarah with contempt. There's bound to be complicated dynamics when two women are sharing a husband. Was Hagar provoking Sarah the whole time? Or does she just get what she deserves in the end? I don't like that interpretation. (laughs) Or maybe what's happening here is that they're all just doing the best they can with what they have in the moment. Abraham trying to be faithful, Hagar oppressed, and Sarah protective. Over the years, there's been a whole bunch of interpretations of the story to set a clear distinction between who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. Um, Our patriarch, John Calvin, had a clear opinion about who the bad ones were in this story, and he said it was the women. Of course, exactly. (laughs) He said that Hagar has a temper and Sarah overstepped the bounds of a modest wife. The Apostle Paul also has a clear opinion in the fourth chapter of Galatians. He teaches us to side with Sarah over Hagar, for Sarah represents freedom and Hagar slavery. But one commenter I read notes that picking a side in a story like this is almost more revealing about who we are than it is the people in the story. Because this isn't a Disney movie. There's no bad guy. Rather, this is a troubling, confusing story. This is a human story. The reality is that none of us live in a Disney movie with clear lines of who is good and who is bad, but rather we all live in a complicated mess and we're just doing the best we can with what we have at the time and asking for God's help. And that takes a lot of empathy to be able to see our world that way. But today in this time, I'm going to focus on Hagar. She's actually the one in the story who's often overlooked, ignored, and blamed. Out of the three people in this story, she's the one people might say, hmm, isn't she some sort of person that was mean to Sarah back in the day? Wasn't she really mean? Because the witness of the church and the history of interpretation of the story has, for the most part, been very unkind to her. She's been associated with words like contempt, wild donkey, the other woman, foreigner and slave. But when you turn to scripture and pull back the curtains of sexism and history, you discover that the heart of Hagar's story is one of a faithful woman trapped in a horrible situation. You find a story of God's grace and mercy and Hagar, a woman of profound strength and courage. Um, Rachel Held Evans is a Christian author who was recently in the news um, a couple of months ago because she tragically and suddenly passed away. She had written several books. She was a pretty young woman. Um, I encourage you to check out her literature that she has. But this past Christmas, she had wrote this book called Inspired. And at the beginning of the book was a chapter entitled The Well, and it was about Hagar. And this story that she had put together in this narrative actually became an important part of how me and the women at the Washington Correction Center chose our name. And so today, I'm going to read an excerpt of that chapter to you in honor of Rachel Held Evans and also to give a picture of the story of Hagar. So listen to this story in the words of Rachel Held Evans. Most of the time, God does the naming. Abraham, Isaac, Israel. But just one person in all our sacred scripture dares to name God. And it wasn't a priest or a prophet, a warrior or a king. It was Hagar, foreigner, slave, woman. Her station ranked her among the invisible. But Hagar belonged to a woman blessed with all the things that a woman wants. Wealth, nobility, legendary, beauty... A womb, but she didn't have the one thing she needed, a womb that could carry a child. So Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham. You might think Hagar callous for not being more angry, more resistant to the task before her, but bearing the child of a tribal leader carried with it the possibility of more freedom. But as the baby grew in Hagar's womb, she began singing, for she had so much joy in her soul. She had more confidence than before. And some will say she grew contemptuous of Sarah. But no one really ever asked Hagar's view of it. The only thing Hagar knew was that for every day her belly grew, spare, Sarah's spirit grew stormier. A slave expects harsh words and withheld rations, but the physical abuse surprised Hagar. Taunts turned to slaps, sparked orders to mule whips to the back, and Abraham did nothing, of course. Hagar's new idols, even less. Did they even notice? Could they even see? Hagar took the road to the desert, the closest thing she knew to home. But as the sun rose like a great unseen eye over the fifth or sixth mile, Hagar collapsed into the dust. Water gone, food regurgitated, she waited there to die or deliver or both. Who will find my body, she wondered. What story will they tell about it? Then, on the rippling horizon, a well. Hagar crawled to it, plunged her face in. She must have fainted there or slept. When Hagar opened her eyes, a stranger stood beside her, a presence, neither male nor female, neither Egyptian nor Hebrew, neither safe nor threatening. Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from? Where are you going? The stranger knew her name. I'm fleeing from my mistress, Hagar answered. Go back to Sarah, the stranger said, but do not be afraid, for not only will this child live, but through him I will give you a whole nation of descendants, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, too numerous to count. Hagar didn't understand why, but immediately believed. The stranger, with the voice of a dove, spoke with the authority of God. Your son will grow into a fighter, God said, a wild donkey of a man, but even as he struggles, he will survive. Call him Ishmael, for it means God hears, and God has heard you in your misery today. In spite of everything, Hagar smiled about the part about the donkey, for already she knew how this child kicked. Every mother is something of a prophet. You may think a prophecy of struggle and strife would dishearten a pregnant mother, but a slave does not struggle or strive. A slave only obeys. And if this prophecy is true, it means Hagar's child Ishmael will be free. So with what force Hagar could muster, she rose to face God, the brightness of the sun obscuring both their faces. She knew it was the God of Sarah, whom she called Yahweh, but if Hagar was to be the mother of a nation, she would give this God a new name. You are a God who not only hears, but sees, Hagar said, surprised by the strength in her voice. I have seen the one who sees me. So Hagar named God as she named the well, Elroy, the God who sees. And it was a name remembered. Hagar would return to this well years later when Sarah Sarah banishes her again to the wilderness, but this time with a little boy clinging to her legs. But Hagar's faith, like Abraham's, was tested, but her faith, unlike the patriarchs, was not remembered in the litany of Hebrews or in the genealogies of the New Testament. Yet just one person in all your sacred scripture dared to name God, and it wasn't a priest or a prophet a warrior or a king. It was Hagar, foreigner, woman, and slave. This past fall, my husband Crawford and I moved here from New Orleans because I received a call from the Presbytery of Olympia to plant a new congregation at the Washington Correction Center for Women, which is often colloquially referred to as Purdy. It is the largest women's prison in Washington State, and since the fall, I have been about the business of bringing this church into fruition. And Hagar's story has been foundational to this new worshiping community. As you might imagine, many women at the WCCW feel as though they have been erased from the story. They've been sent away, exiled, not seen from or heard from. And the women I work with have remarked that it's healing to know that in the midst of one's messy, hard, and complicated life, that God still sees you and uses your story to bring about God's plan for the world. The fact that this story is in the Bible tells us that God does not shy away from the hardest or messiest parts of life. God is not scandalized by the story of Hagar. Rather, it's in our scripture and remembered. God is always present with Hagar, always full of tenderness, full of grace and mercy. And so we have named this church Hagar's because we will always be a congregation of only women, and we thought it was important that a woman's story be at the forefront of our church, and because there's so much hope presented in Hagar's story to the women at the WCCW. We're also a community church because, one, we're ecumenical. We're not just a Presbyterian church. Anyone is welcome to come. But we're also striving to create fellowship and understanding among all who are a part of the worshiping community. We're about the business of cultivating trust and understanding in the midst of an environment where that's really not often found. This is not just a worship service where you come and you sit and listen to me give a sermon and go back to your living unit, Rather, we're doing a lot of activities to create an atmosphere of trust and understanding and true Christian fellowship among all who attend. And finally, we are a church because we are striving to create our own distinctive church that allows the women of the WCCW to belong and to empower them to make decisions about who we are as a congregation. It's our long-term goal for this congregation to eventually charter with the Presbytery and be considered our own distinctive congregation that is no different than Bethany Presbyterian Church. And we're meeting regularly for worship, for Bible study and worship planning, and we even have a leadership core group that meets regularly, like a church session would, that makes decisions about who we are. This past Christmas Day was our first worship service, And um, after a very long advent of preparing for this, I think there was about three years at the presbytery side of prayer, pastoral nominating committees, and all the stuff that goes on. So it was a very long advent season, so it felt appropriate that our first worship service was on Christmas Day, and 85 women attended that first worship service. And then since then, we have been meeting every Saturday evening for worship, which we have about 60, 65 people attending regularly now. We um, also meet weekly for Bible study before worship, so we kind of have a Sunday school hour. And then we meet every other Wednesday for whoever wants to um, be a part of worship planning, so we plan worship every two weeks. And so there's been a huge response, and the response from the women is that they want to say thank you to all the churches that prayed and began this and now continue to support it. They say this is the one time of their week, of their time at the WCCW, that they forget for a moment that they are in prison. The women in my congregation, truthfully, are living many people's worst nightmares— They are separated from their family and children. Almost all of them are mothers that are separated from their children. They have little freedom to make choices about their lives, and the world defines them by their worst mistake. One woman I met with just signed papers to release her child to be adopted. Another woman's husband is on hospice, and she's coming to the realization that she most likely will never be in the physical presence of her husband again. Other women have lost contact with family and friends and have no one to support them while incarcerated or after they are released. And yet these women have shown me what it means to love one another, what it means to support each other, what it means to rely on God, and what it means to come joyfully together in worship. The worship services I have the honor of leading each week are actually full of laughter and gratitude and love. The few from the outside who have the privilege of coming often are caught off guard by that, expecting worship to be much more somber, sad. They comment on the power of the women's faith and how it speaks to and teaches them. (coughs) Excuse me. This work that I've been called to do and these women I've been called to work with have fundamentally changed me as a person. Being allowed to witness their lives and worship alongside them, has opened my eyes to the difficulties of incarceration in our country, but has also showed me how transformative God's love can be. One of my new heroes of faith is a man named Brian Stevenson. You may have heard of him. He's a civil rights attorney, attorney and an author, and he, um, his most recent book is called Just Mercy. And I'm going to end today, sorry, I'm like a little coffee, <laughs> um, with a quote from his book. He says, you are not the worst mistake you have made. If you've lied, you are more than a liar. If you stole, you are more than a thief. And even if you've murdered someone, you are more than a murderer. The injustice of our incarceration system is that we have allowed fear and distance and anger to shape the way we treat the most vulnerable among us. Our country has the highest incarceration rate in the world, and we've become a nation who throws people away without much thought and we have lost our capacity to be merciful. Mercy is a mirror. It is what you give to others who don't deserve it. Mercy is helping the individual figure out the more of who they are and calling them into that reality and hoping that others in our community will do the same for us. He goes on to say, The measure of the health of our soul is by how we treat the poor, the incarcerated, the condemned, and the forgotten. Which is why I'm so excited to work alongside churches like yours, planting a church at the Washington Correction Center for Women. Amen.